Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Drabblecast, episode 292. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's our first commissioned Lovecraft story this week, and what a great story to start off our set of original Mythos tribute tales. But per usual, let's start things off on the show with a 100-word story appetizer. This week's Drabble comes to us from George Sanderson, and it's called The Oldest of the New Gods. George spends his days helping migrants have a happy and successful life in the UK, even the poor ones. This probably irritates some politicians and folks, but that's okay. By night, he rehearses his grand opus in progress, snoring and the art of trying your loved one's patience, but otherwise is currently seeking representation for his first novel, Of Falls and Angela. This new god is older than our ability to imagine gods. We are all of his cult now, unwittingly assigning our meager psychic authority with hedonistic abandon. Alone, we are insubstantial. Legion, we summon evil so vast it is a universe unto itself. The cult wooed the best of us first. These intractable deacons crafted freakish baubles to entice the rest of us, so we are all now his acolytes, each pulling a thread of dementia through the essential barriers indemnifying our minds from infinity. The chants are unspoken, the deacons wise to our suspicions and wisdom. Instead, we but type his name. Google. What did people do before Google? You hear it muttered, dreamlike, by the cultish minions, more times than you'd probably care to imagine in this age. The question perhaps even babbled an occasion from between your own cracked and gibbering lips. I can't imagine what people did before Google. Our sullen and whimpering mountain mongrel ancestors must have flopped about listlessly to no end in their clumsy aboriginal rummagings for porn. 
I care not to think upon it. If there's one reoccurring theme in H.P. Lovecraft's writing, which doesn't have to do with Anglo-centric white supremacy, it would no doubt be the sudden and acute realization that we are not in control. It's a primal type of fear we humans have, dating back probably to the first cavemen ever to hear the crescendo of earthquake rumblings through their cavey walls, before then being trapped in by the inevitable landslide. We aren't in control. We never were in control. We totally thought we were five minutes ago, but then all of a sudden the world started shaking violently and unexplainably around us, and now we're all doomed here in the darkness. What do we do when we're threatened by something wholly alien, unable to combat it? We freak the f out. There's little else we can do if one is to take the nihilistic view that humans are worth very little in the grand scheme of the universe and therefore subject to the disastrous whim of any spectral force beyond our veil of understanding. Be that the shaking of Earth, the stirring of unspeakable elder gods from the deep, or the sudden shutting down of Google and the internet. <laughs> Caked in blood and their own excrement, maddened lunatic throngs would take to scuttling the darkened alleyways in search of a wall, any wall, to scribble out and update their inane, prattling statuses. Guaranteed. <laughs> And on that note, we bring you this week's feature story, Hollow as the World, by Ferret Steinmetz. Ferret's been published in Asimov's, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, GUD Magazine, and Redstone SF, among other places. He spent 20 years locked in an ugly writer hibernation, getting nowhere, until the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop revealed the glitch to secret writing power. Later on, he picked up a magic mushroom boost at the Viable Paradise Workshop. He lives in Cleveland with his wife, a game of rock band, and a friendly ghost. He blogs entirely too much about puns, polyamory, and politics at theferret.com. So without further ado, we bring you Hollow as the World by Ferret Steinmetz. One of the reasons Joshua loved Lydia as much as he did was all the secret rituals they'd devised. Some days, the way Lydia sent Joshua into high titters with a raise of her pierced eyebrow was the only thing that kept Joshua from slitting his wrists. And of all the many traditions that bound them as friends, the most sacred was the second video game bet. You couldn't have the second video game bet without Lydia winning the first bet, of course. That bet was, would Lydia beat this latest game before Joshua did? And she invariably beat it before Joshua, before everybody. Lydia mowed through the toughest levels without dying. Sometimes she completed the games on release day, then sold it back to GameStop for nearly full credit. Joshua's online buddies private messaged him, angling for the secret to Lydia's talent. He never told them, though of course, he did know. He'd asked her once, after she'd finished Portal 3 a full three hours before anyone else. She'd squinted at him over candy-red glasses, deciding whether she could trust him. Then she'd shrugged. I think like a designer, she said. 
Every time I'm not sure what to do, I think, if I'd designed this level, where would I want me to look next? It's made the games predictable. Most days I only beat them to see the end credits. Really? You watch the end credits? It was a slow ball pitch. She grinned, glad at the opportunity to razz him. I'd think end credits would bring you nothing but relief, Joshua. They prove games are designed by people. You do remember that, right? His groan was old and well used. Lydia, it's been years since I've been afraid of... But you were afraid, weren't you? She leaned in, hazel eyes sparkling. Joshua fantasized for the ten billionth time about calling in his marker and kissing her. Yes, I was afraid, he recited. I thought the characters inside the video game had lives when the machine was turned off, the television a window to some other dimension, and I was afraid to play because they knew I was there. I was six when that happened, Lydia. I was six, too, she replied loftily. Yet, bizarrely, I was never worried about that. Nor did I build a whole video game playing technique around proving myself wrong. You just wait for that second bet. That day, she proclaimed, hiding her smile behind a sip of Red Bull, will never come. But five weeks later, Lydia strode into his living room with a puffed-up sneer, all to make her inevitable demise more satisfying, and oh, how he loved her for it. Though he noted the dark circles under her eyes, she'd been pulling all-nighters, playing something. When had she ever hidden something from him? You claim to have cheated your way into another slimy victory, she informed him, though some part of her dramatic recitation felt strained, the enthusiasm one tried to summon up for a sweater as a birthday present. I claim falsified evidence. I say thee nay, sir. What do you give me once I vanquish you? A kiss? She owed him a hundred kisses, and that unfulfilled romantic tension still thrummed through him, but her hesitation before offering the ritual kiss this time made Joshua feel childish, shamed. His basement had always been their refuge, a place to cuddle like kittens and not think too much about dating, yet that pause passed so much judgment onto this safe place. She couldn't outgrow him. She was all he had. Then prepare to be smooched. He fired up the game, itching to return to a world he could control. That's the toughest level, Lydia remarked conversationally. Involves non-linear thinking, lightning reflexes, and complex portal placement. I hold the local record by a good fifteen seconds, of course. You do, Joshua admitted. But you didn't do this. Joshua hit the keys, moving his avatar, and as always, his insecurities washed away. Some people immersed themselves in the game, merging their identity with a collection of polygons, crying, I got killed, when it was their representation that had been cut down. Yet Joshua disdained these useless shells. Video game protagonists were all motionless graphics until he imbued them with purpose. If there were worlds inside video games, they were filled with drooling catatonics aching for possession. No, Joshua loved games not because he could lose himself in them, but because he could destroy them. 
Joshua turned his avatar away from the goal to head towards an innocuous corner back towards the entrance. He had it place two portals end to end in the corner, leaning against each other like lovers, then aimed his avatar at their intersection. The simulated physics of the game collapsed in an unexpected calculation, spitting Joshua out another set of coordinates. Joshua grinned as his avatar dropped down on the other side of a cluster of fiendish puzzles. A glitch! Lydia leapt from the couch in mock outrage, underlaid with a still-beating genuine enthusiasm. Joshua drank up her thrills. You exploit weakness in the game's code, sir. Have you no shame? Cheater. The best cheater, he corrected her, spinning his avatar into a tricky edgewalk glitch to skirt around an impassable fire pit. It's true, he had been afraid the world inside Lydia's Nintendo 64 was a real world once, that he was somehow interrupting, a land of monsters who despised him. Why else would they all lunge towards him, fangs bared? Then he discovered the first bug. No matter how immersive the experience was, jump off the walls from the wrong angle, and this gorgeous castle would collapse into a spiky pile of vertices and textures. And then Joshua glitched through the end goal in record time, saw Lydia's glee, and felt invincible. I stand vanquished, Lydia whispered. She stepped in close, so close her breath kissed him. There was something imposingly dangerous about her, a cat that wanted to be petted but might bite. Care to collect your winnings? Her words made gravity disappear. He hadn't kissed many girls, and those who he'd kissed before denied it, making noises of disgust to their friends, yet was sure his first kiss with Lydia would be worth a lifetime. But he'd never made the first move. He'd pawed at girls' breasts before and been shamefully dismissed. He wanted her to make him feel needed. Except now her body heat shimmered next to his, her fingertips pushing up under his shirt, and her shameless desire terrified him. What if he did it wrong? What if he disappointed her? What if sex broke their friendship? I have a hundred kisses in the bank. He tried to sound cool as a movie star. Why start now? Why wouldn't you? He stammered, unsure how to respond. Lydia sighed and turned away, rummaging through a bowl of Cheetos. She crunched the orange curls between her fingertips, grimacing at the way they'd shattered under pressure. His chest hurt. He knew he'd disappointed her, but what should he have done? Just had sex with her? How could a guy know the rules? Should he try to kiss her now, with her mouth full of Cheetos? Or should he tell her how pissed off he was that she'd expected something different in this basement where cuddling and teasing had been fine before? No, he might lose her. So, what have you been playing? he asked. Judging from the way you're eyeing that bowl of Cheetos, you've forgotten to eat again. She flinched. Stone-hewn. Ugh, that's not even a game. Lydia was playing things she'd despised before, keeping secrets. Digging in mountains, making pretend fortresses with a single enemy to fight. Lydia flashed him a cell phone picture. See that? That is an exact replica of the Taj Mahal, 
It took Amaneus six months from scratch to build it, mining ore from the mountains, chaining up to make adzes, sculpting every tile in the lotus designs of the balcony. And when he laid that last tile, did the game give him some achievement? Only Amaneus can tell you whether the effort suffices. Joshua slumped back on the couch. I have a game where people tell me when I've done well enough. It's called Nathan Hale High, and it sucks. Oh, honey. She shook her head, as if Joshua could not keep up with her. Fear adrenaline shocked its way through his body. She'd been the only friend he'd never had to pretend with. And now... She sensed his panic, squeezed his shoulder. Look, it's... It's not like stone-hewn is deep or anything. It's mostly just wandering around. But there's something beautiful in its starkness. And then you dig trenches. No, it's... it's... She paused, struggling to condense complex sentiments into words. And for a moment, Joshua thought, this is what Lydia would look like if she fell in love with another man. It's like living a dream... You can run for hours, and the game creates new worlds around you. And those worlds, they're beautiful. All grassy fields and thick jungles and deep blue oceans. But that loneliness challenges you. You can dismantle a mountain into rubble, reshape the stone into cities. And yet, what does it mean? Nobody else exists. You don't have to please anyone else. You can't. So you... You keep running deeper. She crumbled the Cheetos. Ugh, I can't explain it. He slid his arms around her. It's okay, I get it. He didn't. She sounded weird, off-kilter. But he would agree with whatever she said to erase this weird fracture growing between them. She curled up against him. You're the best, she said happily. You get me. The warmth of her body made the lie okay. He put on another My Little Pony marathon, a show meant for kids that they both secretly adored. Yet Lydia shifted in his arms, distracted. Joshua felt like an old and beloved obligation. She stayed only to comfort him. But before she scuttled out of the house, Lydia did something she'd never done before. After the hug goodbye, she kissed him on the cheek. She pulled her lips away from his skin slowly, Reluctantly. There is a way to beat Stonehewn, she whispered, and I'm going to beat him. And she was gone. A week later, she was dead. Lydia's funeral had turned Nathan Hale High into a chaotic investigation. Kids grasped Joshua's hands, tugging him aside for interrogations. I knew she was messed up, they whispered. But how bad was it? She looked so goth. We assumed it was just a look, but... In a way, these conversations were compliments. Everyone agreed no one had truly known Lydia but Joshua. And yet, they all assumed her misery, his misery, was dysfunction. He wanted to scream that if they'd just let Lydia be Lydia, maybe she wouldn't have... wouldn't have... Lydia had run into the woods, sprinting in a straight line until her heart had blown like a burst tire.
There had been no defensive marks on Lydia's arms, her only wounds tiny whip marks on her cheeks where she'd run face first through tree branches. They'd only found her body miles from home thanks to her phone's find me feature, but her cell phone was fully charged. If there'd been an emergency, she'd have called 911. Nobody else exists, she'd told him. You don't have to please anyone. How could he not have seen that sad desire as a cry for help? Crap, he'd been so worried about losing her that it never occurred to him that he could lose her. Would she still be alive if he had kissed her? Maybe. He was the last person she'd talked to via a note on her laptop. Joshua, a dangerous mirror. This reveals truth. Insane. Her father, still a little drunk, had given him the laptop, tasked Joshua with the regrettable job of hunting reasons down for her suicide. Her disc was full of nothing but adoring essays about Stonehewn's voiceless hero, Amineus, frightening, repetitive rambles of how brave this man was to run in silence, how Lydia wasn't worthy of this world. She'd deleted everything else except the game itself. Joshua was furious. All that was left of Lydia was this save file. He booted it up to crash it. He'd glitch into areas the designers never intended, then trigger a bug to collapse Stonehewn's blocky trees into blue screen. The game presented his avatar, Amineus, a sleek-skinned, muscular hero, a Greek Adonis who you could easily believe would single-handedly build a city. This was the man who'd broken Lydia's heart, this empty-hearted cluster of pixels. He'd shatter him to code. Joshua pressed Enter to start, then F1 for help. Nothing. The usual tutorials were absent, which came as no surprise. Stonehewn was infamously obscure. He pulled up an online tutorial, learned that pressing S actually began the game. Joshua cracked his knuckles as the loading screen cycled. The game began with Amineus standing upon Joshua's doorstep. Is he threatening me? Joshua shoved himself away from the keyboard, that old fear he'd opened a window to another world, raking claws across his heart. Yet Amineus, his avatar, stood in front of his house. In the game, Joshua shifted the mouse. There was old man Hansen's house. There was the 7-Eleven. The starting environment was, in fact, a digital rendition of his block, reduced to the stiff angles and bold colors of a shareware computer game. Joshua bit his palm to stifle a scream, then checked FAQ, certain there had to be a trick behind this. There was. Stonehewn used IP address tracking to triangulate where you lived, then rendered a Google Maps satellite view of your neighborhood. His terror ebbed confidence rising. Automatic renderings invariably created weird edge cases to prey on. Joshua stared at his home's digital recreation, looking for mesh weaknesses, broken textures to exploit. There were none. If anything, his house looked somehow purer, 
Joshua's real-life lawn was festooned with spiky weeds, but the grass on the artificial lawn was smooth and summer green. Dad had bitched about replacing the shingles on their roof, but this digital roof was perfectly black. His whole neighborhood looked renewed, the cracked sidewalks smoothed to eye-pleasing straight lines, a bold reinterpretation that transformed a rundown suburb into Art Deco beauty. Yet this recreation was cold and vacant. There were no cars, no old men taking their dogs for a walk. Only Amineus, fingers clenching and unclenching in cynical animation, hungry to reshape the world. This game is creep-tastic, Joshua texted, nearly hitting send, before he remembered Lydia was dead. She would have hated him bagging on her game anyway. He dropped the phone, paralyzed with sadness. Amineus ripped open the door to his house. Joshua let loose a hoarse, death-rattle-like sound. Without any input from him, Amineus was carefully placing the door in the center of their lawn, was turning toward Joshua's house, was striding into Joshua's living room. Joshua hugged the screen, terrified Amineus would romp up the stairs to yank Lydia's laptop out of his hand, take the last of Lydia away with him. Joshua mashed his hands onto the keyboard. Amineus cruised to a stop, disinterestedly analyzing the inside of the house. Joshua sighed in relief. Not only did Amineus submit to his commands, but the inside of Joshua's game house was empty scaffolding. He hissed air through his teeth. He was going to crack the shit out of this game. Joshua lifted his fingers from the keyboard, wary lest Amineus come to life again, then checked the FAQ. Sure enough, this disturbing volition was another of Stonehune's quirks. After a period of non-interaction, Amineus would harvest materials. Given enough time, Amineus would build structures of such beauty that many players preferred Amineus's work to their own. Lydia's hard drive was stuffed with screenshots of Amineus's castles. Joshua's breath was too short, his fingers tense. He remembered Lydia and began to play. The world was empty, but for that one bare city block, Joshua discovered. Move beyond, and there was nothing but wilderness. Joshua pressed the forward key. Amineus charged ahead, his feral smile ready to chew up any challenge as the game formed new terrain to meet them. Buried somewhere in these world creation routines was a fatal bug that would let him shatter this starry sky into meaningless pixels. Joshua played, wreathed in reminiscence and guilt. He could see why Lydia had loved this game. There was no designer to anticipate. The random landscapes gave Stonehewn a slot machine quality, turned every hillside into potential reward. Cresting most hillocks led to ordinary places, waving fields of wheat, rivers cutting through flat expanses of red clay, the crowd-choked slopes of mountains, all rendered in cubist perfection, smooth as glass, without a single glitched vertice for Joshua to exploit. Yet, just as Joshua grew bored, the game would generate something uniquely breathtaking. Sulfur smoke jetting from volcanic gnashes in the earth, glimmering fields of latticed salt crystals, canyons where the wind had etched spider-thin bases under teetering red rock spires. 
Amineus would occasionally stumble across ruins, as if to suggest that once someone had tried to live here and abandoned it. The world seemed abandoned. There were meadows of grain without crows, fruited jungles without baboons, seaweed-choked oceans without fish. How were the meadows pollinated, Joshua wondered. What birds scattered the seeds? This world was fecund with plant life. It was as though some unkind god had vacuumed out anything with a voice just before Amineus arrived. Was this land paradise or a prison? Joshua understood why Lydia wrote fanfiction. She'd been trying to knit Amineus's mysteries into a coherent whole a world he'd vowed to destroy. Suddenly, crushing Lydia's game felt petty, like squashing the bee that had died stinging you. Joshua discovered he was petty. Lydia had loved this world so much she'd spent her final hours here instead of with him. He should go outside, play in the sun, find some friends. Instead, he labored at the keyboard, hoping to crush her final memory as proof he could still affect her. Given the powers of a god, Joshua had become a revenge killer. No wonder Lydia hadn't loved him. Exploiting Amineus's world felt like frying ants with a magnifying glass, the most pathetic of murders. Impotent in this world, he'd escaped to another to strangle it. Still, he combined every element he could find to induce malfunctions. He fused geodes and popcorn, onyx and aloe vera, wheat and mercury. Lydia, forgive him. There were no bugs. He tiptoed across every vertice on the largest mountain he could find, searching every angle on every rock for gaps in the world to fall through. There were no bugs. He pressed random keys, entering every command he could devise, hunting for the unexpected input. There were no bugs. He ordered Amineus to dig straight down, seeking the boundaries of the earth. Amineus fell into caverns lit by smoldering magma, found glimmering blue troves of radioactive diamonds. There were no bugs. Joshua despaired. Amineus did not. If Joshua lifted his hands from the keyboard, Amineus would bend to dig in the soil, pulling up roots, rebuilding a new home wherever he rested. Joshua sat stupefied, wrung dry from grief. As if to show him what work truly was, Amineus toiled on the veldt for twelve hours straight. By the end of the day, he had fashioned a grand mud hut out of nothing but water and straw. Spitefully, Joshua punched the forward key, making Amineus leave it all behind. The hut vanished from view, swallowed by the immensity of the world. It was as if Amineus had done nothing. Amineus's grin, if anything, intensified. How could Lydia have seen Stonehewn as a place for creation? Stonehewn was death, implacable, impervious, inescapable. Everything to build, nothing to gain. But that was his world now. 
Lydia was gone, and without her there was nothing good left anywhere. By wandering through these intricately constructed vacancies, Joshua did penance for overlooking her pain. Because he'd failed her, hadn't he? She'd wanted that kiss, ached for it. He'd institutionalized cowardice into rituals, calcified heartfelt sentiment into corny jokes. Every real feeling he ever wanted to share with her, sex terrifies me, you terrify me, but if I never try, I'll never fail. He'd jailed deep in his heart. No wonder Lydia had grown bored of him. His plastic nature, his ludicrous insistence, he was the honest one. Amineus was real. He knew that now. Real emotionally. Amineus worked only for pleasure, never faked enjoyment to get friends. The barrenness had stripped him honest. The more he played, the more Amineus's smile seemed to be the only genuine emotion Joshua had ever witnessed. No wonder Lydia had loved it here. It was a childish thought, imagining the inner lives of video games. But Amineus lived in a world that could not encompass the possibility of friendship. Amineus was the last man in a funeral of a world, yet his grief was still passion. When Amineus's despair passed, he left a church standing in its wake. Joshua's grief made illusionary men move stirred empty pixels, fogs of hollowness. He hated himself for playing Stone Hewn. He knew he should abandon the game and do something, anything productive, but he could not rid himself of the sensation that if he just kept pressing the forward key, propelling Amineus onwards, he would, must, sneak up on whatever malicious force whisked the living away before Amineus arrived. Amineus was being punished. Lydia's testimonies to Amineus deepened as Joshua reread them. He could read her anguish by inverting her desires. Lydia had burned for Joshua to collect his kiss, felt slutty and horrible for wanting Joshua, and stiff and prissy for not making the first move, and weak and plastic for pretending the attraction changed nothing. Amineus built what he wanted, ran where he wanted. Neither Joshua nor Lydia doubted that Amineus fucked like he wanted. Why had Lydia adored Amineus? Why wouldn't she? If Joshua had had the strength to summon one truthful moment, she might be with him right now. It seemed flagrantly cruel to trap a creature as honest as Amineus inside an illusion. But was Amineus's world fake, or perfectly designed? Joshua had thrown every exploit he had at Amineus's land, and its integrity had never wavered. Every action in Amineus's world was perfection. When Amineus smashed a pane of glass, it split into four perfect smaller squares. When Amineus cut wood for a home, the new piece fit into place with the precision of a jigsaw puzzle. No, Joshua's world was bug-riddled. Sewers clogged with sodden condoms, real-world glitches in crumbling pavement. He pressed forward on the keys, sending Amineus running, Joshua's portal to this joyless, stark, and perfect land. Amineus's world 
was better. Joshua's remaining enjoyment came from controlling this perfect being with his fingertips. Joshua tapped the keys and Amineus ran forward. Joshua lifted his fingers and Amineus rested briefly. Press, run, release, rest. A tight coupling connecting him to Amineus more intimately than he'd ever been connected to Lydia. I'm going to beat him, Lydia had told him. But Joshua had misheard. I'm going to be him, is what she'd said. Now, pressing and running, releasing and resting, Joshua understood. He was no longer playing a game. He was submerging his personality into Amineus, longing to be an honest man. He concentrated on his fingertips, the keys, relishing this tenuous connection, sending commands to a being greater than himself. Press, run, release, rest. Press, run and Amineus vaulted over a hillock to encounter a sprawling maze of a city, cobblestone streets and glass cathedrals and gleaming bronze statues. Joshua stabbed the keys forward, but Amineus's full-out run slowed to a confident half-jog. He swung his arms as he walked, puffing for the first time the erratic gait of a marathoner crossing the finish line. Amineus circled the city walls, claiming them. Of course he owned it. This hand-built metropolis was what a restless architect like Amineus would create, a pile of disparate architectures joined together by a roughly hewn mentality, so limitless that Amineus himself had forgotten what he'd made, could startle himself with his own beauty. Amineus did not enter. Instead, he turned to face Joshua, staring straight into Joshua's eyes. Joshua leaned back, stunned, and his fingers left the keys just as Amineus halted, arms crossed. Amineus looked down at the keyboard with a sad, knowing grin, then took a single step forward. Joshua's finger dropped onto the key. Joshua stared, goggle-eyed, at Amineus, who held up one finger to demonstrate before running experimentally in a tiny circle. Joshua's hands fell to the keys, the connection inverted. Amineus moved, and Joshua's fingers jerked in response. But wasn't that the way it had always been? Up until now, Amineus and Joshua's will had been one, melded, the flow of control perfectly equal. Only once Amineus was done playing the game did Joshua understand that he'd never controlled a man like Amineus, could never have. Joshua was passive and inert, housed in a world that rotted. Amineus had sent Joshua out to kiss strange girls and cuddle Lydia and creep around the high school lockers, bringing Joshua back to the keyboard when he wished to go for a run around his lands. But really, Joshua had never existed. All the interesting things in his life had come at someone else's behest. His whole life had been a game, and not even a particularly well-designed one. Another scared teenager, selfish, passive, predictable. 
Seen through Amineus's eyes, Joshua saw the truth of his sad existence, a poorly designed game that deserved to be ended. Amineus gestured wearily. Joshua rose from his chair with the solemnity of a funeral. Complicity or control, Joshua did not know. Regardless, bolted downstairs, running, running madly into the woods, madly after Lydia, madly after oblivion. The game complete, Amineus turned away to amble into his private maze, wandering among glories beyond all comprehension, and was quickly lost from view. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. This story reminds me a lot of one of my favorite classic Lovecraft yarns, The Dreams in the Witch House. It's a story where a young university student moves into a strange old apartment and begins to notice, only fleetingly at night, bizarre and irregular geometries to his walls and ceilings, impossible angles to the corners of his room. Needless to say, things don't work out so great for our nosy and relentless protagonist, who happens to be, of course, a graduate student of mathematics and folklore. Monumental breakthroughs in early 20th century physics and mathematics posed a serious challenge to the established order of things in Lovecraft's lifetime. With the advent of Einstein's special and general theories of relativity, everything people thought they knew about the nature of space and time turned completely on its head. And more than ever before, the universe must have seemed boundless and utterly alien. Can you imagine the expression on Lovecraft's dour, pasty face when Einstein announced that the geometry of the universe was not only warped, but in fact allowed for the existence of more than three spatial dimensions? Oh, hell yeah, Lovecraft probably said. Space-time curvature, n-dimensional manifolds, hyperbolic non-Euclidean geometry. These are all words that crazy-eyed men with beards and protractors were actually saying out loud. Geometry was supposed to be frickin' Euclidean. How could it not be? If we can't even bank on shapes being shapes anymore, then what's to stop, oh, I don't know, massive, vaporous, trans-dimensional ghost rats from pouring out of a crack in our ceilings and trampling us as we step out of the shower? Nothing but the possibility that they won't. In Ferret's story, we have one character who insists on beating games by understanding their foundational makeup, thinking about them and their architecture from the standpoint of a traditional game designer. It makes the games predictable, she says, and predictability is good. Then we have Joshua, who doesn't care about immersing himself in a game or really understanding its characters or world. He cares about beating the game by beating the system finding the glitches and strange irregularities in the corner that surely must be there if one only looks close enough. But ultimately, like any dewy-eyed worshipper, nightmare-plagued sleeper, nosy mathematics student, or love-struck gamer will tell you, attempting to cartograph the unreal and impossible means hitting those woods full speed and never looking back. 
Ferret says he live wrote this story recently to help raise money for the 10th annual Clarion West Write-a-thon. He wrote four drafts of Hollow as the World in the Clarion community, where he noted exactly what was wrong with each draft and how he planned to fix it. If you're interested in seeing how this piece flourished from start to finish, a $5 donation to the Clarion Writers' Workshop will get you entry to the -the behind-the-scenes director's commentary, which is the kind of stuff Ferret says he would have killed to see as a beginning writer. Find that link to Ferret's live journal in our show notes. I've got to say, it was interesting to see how much this story changed from the earlier drafts he sent us in July. Go check it out. Alright, so the space above my futon is looking at me weird again. Better get this thing on the road. Our 100 character story winner this week, Monsieur Mustache, with this one here. I never knew my mom, but I love stepmom. She gives the best of herself. I'm lucky to have such a good intestine to call home. Parasitastic. Think you can write a good story using only 100 characters, not counting spaces? It's fun. Why not give it a try? Post it in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org, where we pick a winner each week and post it out on our Twitter feed. You can follow the Drabblecast on Twitter at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, blog about us, spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Oscar Kunik. Oscar lives in Poland with his girlfriend and three cats. He loves people who share their work on the internet for free. And we love you, Oscar, for contributing your awesome talents to the show. Thanks a lot. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nikki Drayden, submissions editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you that My Little Pony comes on in 10 minutes. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.